2: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Saturday, December 12th, 1970, was a bitter cold evening in Fort St. James, British Columbia. A former fur trading post for the Hudson's Bay Company, about 900 kilometres northeast of Vancouver. But the freezing temperatures outside were not going to take away from the excitement inside the Spencer family farmhouse. If you were a kid growing up in Canada in 1970, you knew that Saturday nights were reserved for one thing, hockey night in Canada, on CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Network. And whether you were a fan of the game or not, That's what the whole family would be watching. On the night of December 12th, the Toronto Maple Leafs were playing the Chicago Blackhawks. And for Roy Spencer, the prospect of watching his son on hockey night in Canada was a dream come true. 21-year-old Brian Spinner Spencer was playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He played left wing and he was known as an enforcer. That night was going to be Brian's first televised game. And he'd called his father that morning to tell him even more exciting news. He was going to be interviewed during one of the intermissions. Finally, all of their hard work was paying off. Roy Edward Spencer, a 59-year-old gravel pit operator, and World War II Army veteran had encouraged his son's hockey career. He wanted his boys to have more than he did and a chance to escape Fort St. James, or the Fort as it was known locally, a rough logging and mining town. The normally introverted Roy Spencer invited friends and family to his home for a watch party. Beginning at 5 p.m. due to the time change between the West Coast and Toronto, drinks were on him. He had even installed a new TV antenna on the roof of his house because CKPG, the closest CBC affiliate station carrying hockey night in Canada, was over a hundred miles away in Prince George. Roy Spencer wanted to make sure the game came in clear. Welcome
0: to Hockey Night in Canada.
2: But when the game began, something was wrong. The CBC was airing a different hockey game. The network had decided that the west coast of Canada would prefer to see the Vancouver Canucks play the California Golden Seals instead of the Maple Leafs playing the Chicago Blackhawks. Roy Spencer was livid. Ignoring the family and friends who had gathered, Roy Spencer stormed out of his house. His wife Irene ran after him, imploring him to stop and think before he did something he'd regret. But Roy was in a blind rage. He was going to get his son's hockey game on the local television station even if he had to drive over 100 miles. At around 7.15 that night, Thomas Hartle, a news reporter for CKPG in Prince George, had just pulled into the parking lot of the news station. As he walked up to the back door, a man suddenly appeared out of the darkness. I don't like the CBC's hockey games, the man said. Why don't you broadcast more Toronto games? Hartle didn't know what the man was talking about. But before he could reply, he felt the butt of a gun in his back. Then he heard the click of the hammer being pulled back. The man pushed Thomas Hartle through the door of the TV station. Carol Russell... The receptionist for CKPG saw the two men enter, and she saw the gun. She had to call the police, but the stranger tore the telephone receiver from her hand. He then walked the two terrified employees into the newsroom, where a group of other employees were working. With the pistol pointed at the news director, Stuart Fawcett, the man herded eight of the staff up against a wall. This gentleman has a problem that he'd like to discuss with us, said the station manager. The man proceeded to say that he had driven down from Fort St. James because he had a problem with the CBC. He was demanding to watch the Toronto Maple Leafs game that was airing that night from Toronto because his son Brian was playing. The terrified newsroom staff realized the man with the gun was talking about number 15 on the Leafs, Brian Spencer. The kid was a local hero. The station manager tried to explain to the man how a network affiliate worked. They only got one feed and the feed that night was for the Vancouver Canucks game. The staff at the station had no control over the broadcast and they could not simply switch programming. The man grew more irritated. Well, if I can't watch it, then nobody should watch any hockey, he said. Turn off the television station, he demanded. I've killed before in the commandos, he added. Fearing for their safety... They did what the armed man wanted, and the station controller cut the feed. At 7.40pm, 10.40pm Toronto time, CKPG TV went off the air. For anyone watching the game that night in Prince George, their TV screens had suddenly gone black. Satisfied, the gunman lowered his weapon and walked out the front door of the building. But what no one realized at the time was that someone else at the station had managed to call the police. Now, three Royal Canadian Mounted Police were standing outside with their guns drawn. Stop! Drop the gun! they yelled at the man as he exited the TV station. But the man didn't stop. Instead, He fired two shots at the police officers. One of the officers was hit in the foot. More shots rang out. They ran for cover. Another bullet grazed an officer's holster. The man kept shooting. They fired back. They had no choice. Three bullets hit their target. The man fell to the ground and rolled into a snowbank. He was dead. At that same moment, back in Toronto, his son was being interviewed on hockey night in Canada.
1: We're happy now to welcome a young man who's just been with the Leafs this past week, Brian Spencer.
2: Four days later, Brian Spencer delivered a eulogy at his father's funeral. He said his dad was a kind, generous, warm-hearted man. He said that his father had fought for his country in World War II. But Canada had ultimately let Roy Spencer down. And then he read from the telegram his father had sent him before the Maple Leafs-Blackhawks game on that night he died. Give him hell, son. We are mighty proud. I'm Catherine Fogarty. And in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a hockey legend. A scrappy kid from a nowhere Canadian town who had barely learned to walk when he was already on skates. His father wanted him to be a hockey star and dreamed of his son making it into the NHL. But the father's dream and the son's journey to celebrity and success would come with a heavy price and would ultimately end in tragedy for both of them. This is Hockey Night to Remember, the life of Brian Spinner Spencer. Hockey Night in Canada. Brian Spencer was... ...time of murder... Brian Roy Spencer and his fraternal twin brother, Byron, were born on September 3, 1949, in Fort St. James, British Columbia, to Roy and Irene Spencer, a hard-working couple. The family lived in a small house with no running water, no indoor toilet, and no electricity. Life was tough, but they got by. And like many Canadian boys, the Spencer twins grew up on hockey skates. Their father Roy was passionate about the game, and the long, bleak winters were spent on the ice. Roy taught his boys everything he knew about the game, even though he had never learned to skate. Roy eventually built a hockey rink on the Spencer farm where the boys would practice day and night since Roy had even installed floodlights. And when the twins got older, he would wake them up at 3 a.m. to drive them to the Vanderhoof Outdoor Hockey Arena where games began at 6 a.m. no matter how far below zero the temperature was. Brian's twin brother, Byron. Dad built us a little skating rink and. We used to shovel the snow off of it. Dad's dedication, you know, was, was tremendous. You know, we'd, we'd be the only two people at a hockey practice sometimes at 4 o'clock on a Saturday morning after driving, you know, 40 miles and, and 30 below weather and snowy roads. And that, that, was, that was everything to him. It was his whole life. On Saturday nights, the Spencer family would sit together and listened to Hockey Night in Canada, a radio broadcast that had launched in 1952. Byron cheered for the Toronto Maple Leafs because his favourite player was Frank Mahovlich, while Brian cheered for the Detroit Red Wings because of Gordie Howe. Roy Spencer was a hard, stubborn man who instilled a strong work ethic in his boys, he wanted them to have a better life than he had. Roy had suffered a number of injuries during the war and was in constant pain, which made him moody. But he always provided well for his family. Both boys excelled at hockey, but didn't have the same passion for education. And by their mid-teens, Brian and Byron were skipping school and getting into trouble. At 15, they were sent to a reform school on Vancouver Island where they stayed for a year. In 1968, at age 17, Brian Spencer was done with school and with Fort St. James. He headed to Calgary and then onto Saskatchewan where he began playing for the Regina Pats in the Western Canadian Junior Hockey League. Brian proved to be a hard skating, fast charging player who soon gained the nickname Spinner for his aggressive skating style. At five foot 11 and 185 pounds with a washboard stomach, Spinner Spencer was tough and aggressive on and off the ice and didn't always get along with his teammates. Fear motivated Brian. His dad had taught him to be tough and tireless, and Brian was always afraid of not measuring up. After playing on four junior hockey teams over two seasons, Spinner was finally drafted into the National Hockey League in the summer of 1969. He was the fifth pick for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and even though the team was in last place, it was a dream come true for the hockey-loving Canadian kid and his dad. Brian Spinner Spencer had made it into the NHL. 1970-71 was Brian's official rookie season after a year with the farm team in Tulsa, Oklahoma where he had also gotten married. He and his wife Linda packed up and moved to Toronto. The kid from Fort St. James had never been to a big city and now he would be playing on the same team as some of his idols, Daryl Sittler, Dave Keon, Paul Henderson, and Jim McKenney. Brian's first televised game was on Saturday, December 12th, 1970, and he had learned that he was also going to be interviewed between periods. It was the night his dad, Roy Spencer, had dreamed of. His son was going to be a hockey star. And Brian had something else to celebrate before his television debut on Hockey Night in Canada. Two days earlier, his wife, Linda, had given birth to a healthy baby girl they named Andrea. At 21, Brian Spinner Spencer was on top of the world. Years later, he reflected on that special moment.
1: I was a young man. I was just fresh out of British Columbia. And when I skated out of Maple Leaf Gardens, the people were, the people were on their feet.
2: On Saturday, December 12th, 1970, Roy Spencer finished his chores early around the farm so he could get ready for Hockey Night in Canada, airing late that afternoon. With a three-hour time difference, the game would be starting at 5 p.m., and Roy didn't want to miss a minute. Roy had sacrificed a lot for Brian's hockey, and now everything was finally coming to fruition but he didn't know how long he'd be around to see his son's career take off. The 59-year-old was dying of kidney failure and his once large muscular frame had already dwindled to 140 pounds. He didn't know how long he had, but seeing his son in a Maple Leafs jersey on hockey night in Canada was a dying man's wish come true. But Roy Spencer wasn't going to see his son on television that night, or any other night. When he stormed out of the house to drive to the CBC affiliate television station in Prince George, he had a rifle, an automatic pistol, three hunting knives, and over a dozen rounds of ammunition for each gun a 40-ounce bottle of booze was stashed under the front seat. Two and a half hours later Roy Spencer was lying dead in a snowbank outside CKPG news station in Prince George. His wife Irene had tried to stop him from leaving the house and then watched helplessly from her living room as the television station went black. Moments later She turned on the radio to hear a special bulletin. An armed gunman had entered the station and taken staff hostage. Then, a second bulletin announced that the man had been killed. Back in Toronto, at Maple Leaf Gardens, Brian Spencer was sitting down for his first televised interview.
1: And we're happy now to welcome a young man who's just been with the Leafs this past week, Brian Spencer. And, uh, Brian, since joining the team, looks like you've come to play. <laughs> oh, I, uh, that's what I had, uh, had in mind when I came out. And, Brian, tell me about yourself. Your home was where? In, uh, Fort St. James, British Columbia. It's, uh, about the central, central of the province. Mm-hmm. That's where I played most of my minor hockey. Mm-hmm. And you played junior hockey? Uh, in, uh, Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan it was, uh, at that time, a brewing organization. And uh, then I turned pro with Tulsa last fall, and I've been in there between there and here since then. Brian, what personal goals have you set for yourself for this year? For so this year, I'd like to stay uh, staff with Toronto and, and help the club as much as I can, and maybe score 15 goals if I can. Thank you very much, Brian, and the very best of good luck to you in pursuit much. of that. Happy night in Canada continues in just a moment.
2: Later that night, Brian had finally gotten to bed after an exciting night his first televised game, and his first interview on Hockey Night in Canada. Plus, the Leafs had won against the Blackhawks. The future was looking bright, and he knew his dad would be proud. But then the phone rang. It was his mother. The following day... After learning of his father's death, Spinner Spencer boarded the Maple Leafs bus for a trip to Buffalo, New York. The Leafs were scheduled to play the Buffalo Sabres that Sunday night, and Roy Spencer's son wasn't going to let his team down. Brian knew that's where his father would want him to be, on the ice. The Leafs won 4-0, with two assists by Spinner Spencer. And broadcaster Foster Hewitt selected him as one of the game's three stars. The Leafs coach, John McClellan, praised Brian's performance. That boy has a lot of courage, he told reporters. Four days later, Brian Spencer returned to Fort St. James on a private jet owned by the Leafs organization to say goodbye to his father. And while Roy Spencer had wanted his son to become a famous hockey player, Spinner Spencer was now in the limelight for a very different reason. The tragedy that had unfolded at the television station in Prince George had suddenly catapulted the 21-year-old onto the front page of every major newspaper and television and radio stations were lining up to interview him. Some sympathetic press reports were saying that Roy Spencer's behavior on the night of his death was attributable to his kidney failure, while more salacious reports blamed alcohol and suggested that mental illness ran in the family. But after the shocking death of his father and the overwhelming media attention, Brian Spencer just wanted to play hockey and became even more focused and determined. For the rest of the 1970-71 season, Brian excelled on the ice, racking up more goals and assists than he ever had. He was doing what he loved, and he was finally getting to play against his idols, like Bobby Orr, Bobby Clark, and Phil Esposito. He would show the world who Roy Spencer's son was. But off the ice, Brian struggled with being a husband and a father. The domestic life in a rented house in Scarborough just didn't suit him. His twin brother, Byron, had told him he was too young to get married, and it turned out he was right. After three years and three daughters, Brian's wife, Linda, returned to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Brian was now married to his fans, and they adored him. At the end of the 1971-72 hockey season, and after 36 games with the Toronto Maple Leafs, Brian was traded to the New York Islanders. They were a weak team, but Brian worked hard, scoring 14 goals and 24 assists in his first season. He was now making $50,000 a season, plus bonuses. He was a popular player, and by the end of 1972, he was wearing an A on his jersey for assistant captain. And life in New York was good to Brian. In 1973, he met a beautiful brunette named Janet. She worked for the Islanders team in group sales, and Brian was smitten. The two were soon married and eventually had two sons. The Islanders would go on to become the best team in the NHL, winning the Stanley Cup four years in a row, beginning in 1980. But Brian's tenure with the team ended after the 1973-74 season when he was traded to the Buffalo Sabres. At 25, Brian was at his peak, physically and mentally he ended up playing his best hockey in a Sabres uniform, scoring 12 goals and 29 assists in the 1974-75 season. He was fast and he knew how to hit. He didn't back down from anyone. Opposing players didn't like going up against him and other teams had a not-so-secret slogan for him. Don't wake up the spin. And the fans loved him. Brian was always the last guy off the ice, chatting up fans and signing autographs. He was a local celebrity who worked hard and lived large. Brian was now earning over $100,000 a year. He owned a house on Long Island and drove a 1959 Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud. He was part owner of a local bar and restaurant, where he was often spotted smoking a pipe in his leather pants and sealskin coat. He was a media darling, and even in the off-season, television crews were chasing him down for a story. In September 1977, he was traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins, one of the worst teams in the league at the time. But as usual, Spinner Spencer quickly established himself as a rough, flamboyant crowd-pleaser. He played 79 games in the first season and only seven games in the second season before being sent down to the minors. He stayed for another year before retiring in the 1979-1980 season, at age 30. In 10 years and 533 NHL games, Spinner Spencer had scored 80 goals, 143 assists, and had collected 634 penalty minutes. His professional hockey career was over And so was his second marriage. Brian got in his car and headed to Florida. Life after any professional sports career is never easy. When the cheering stops, the silence is deafening, according to one popular cliche. The sport and the game demand everything of the professional athlete. And everything is sacrificed in pursuit of the dream, a normal childhood, education, marriages and families, let alone one's physical and mental health. But once that dream is achieved, a professional athlete is treated like a god. Heroes in numbered jerseys, earning big paychecks, and playing to adoring fans. So, what happens when it's all over? For Brian Spencer, a grade 11 dropout from a small town, there was nothing. He had sacrificed everything for the game, and now at 30, he had no job, no family and no money. In 1980, he arrived in Palm Beach, Florida with $400 to his name. He eventually found work as a mechanic for an electrical contracting company. Brian, like his dad, had always been good with his hands and could take anything apart and put it back together again. But when he wasn't working, he spent most of his time drinking. It was part of the lifestyle in sunny Florida. So he drank to fit in and he drank to forget. In 1981, a year after he had moved to Florida, Brian's brother, Byron, came to see him. The twins who had once been inseparable had drifted apart over the years, but their bond was still strong. And while Byron's life had not taken the same direction as Brian's, he was sad to see his once-successful brother living in a rundown trailer in the middle of a Florida swamp. Brian was living with an attractive woman named Diane. And while Byron thought she was nice enough, she and his brother fought all the time. Byron urged Brian to come back to British Columbia with him. There was nothing good for him in Florida. But Brian said he hated the cold. Byron knew it wasn't the weather keeping Brian away from his home. He was running from his past, his NHL career, and his two failed marriages. Spinner Spencer felt he had let everyone down. There was nothing left for him in Canada. Byron Spencer finally gave up on trying to persuade Brian to come home. On Christmas Day, he boarded a bus north. Two months later, someone would be dead. And Brian Spinner Spencer would wish he had gotten on that bus. Ready
0: to pop the question?
1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: In the afternoon of February 4, 1982, the West Palm Beach Police Detachment received a call from a trucker who had discovered a body on an isolated road off the Florida Turnpike. The trucker was on his way to the local sewage treatment plant when he noticed something lying in a clearing of pine trees about 50 feet off the road. It looked like a mannequin. A sign nearby said no dumping. The truck driver slowed down to get a better look, and that's when he noticed buzzards slowly circling overhead. He instantly realized... It wasn't a mannequin. He radioed for the police. When the police and emergency crews arrived at the remote scene, they found a white male in a black bikini bathing suit who appeared to have been beaten and shot twice, once in the head and once through the nose. But miraculously, the man was still breathing paramedics rushed him to the Palm Beach Gardens Hospital, but he succumbed to his injuries two hours later. The victim turned out to be 32-year-old Michael James Delpho, a local real estate agent and son of a wealthy and prominent land developer in South Florida. He had died from two 25 caliber shots to his head at close range. Investigators learned that Michael Delpho was a well-known guy around West Palm Beach. He liked to party hard, and his kind of partying usually involved cocaine and female escorts. On the night of his murder, Delpho had called the Fantasy Island Escort Service three times. His first date that night was with a woman named Diane Delena, who went by the name Crystal. Delena later told the police that she had gone to Michael Delfo's condo that evening, but their date had been unsuccessful because he was too high on cocaine to perform sexually. He began getting agitated and started pressuring her to stay an extra hour. Diane said she started to feel uncomfortable and wanted to leave. He wrote her a $75 check, but she refused the payment and ran out of the apartment. Diane said she called her service and told them not to send anyone else to that address because the client was unpredictable. But Delfo did call again and the escort service sent over two more girls. When they arrived, Delfo was verbally abusive, so they left. He called again, but the service finally refused to send him a third date. Undeterred, Delfo called another escort company. A woman from Rainbow Escorts claimed that she had arrived at Delphoe's condominium at 3.30 in the morning. The door to the condo was open, but no one was there, so she left. She assumed that she had been stood up. Ten hours later, Delphoe, clinging to life, was discovered by the trucker. Homicide investigators interviewed all of the escorts that had been in Michael DeFoe's home that night and while their stories remained consistent there was something unique about Diane Delena the first woman who had been to DeFoe's that evening the 22-year-old pretty brunette had only been working as an escort for 3 months and she had a live-in boyfriend who just happened to be a former professional hockey player in the NHL. His name was Brian Spencer. Brian Spencer and Diane Delena lived in a rundown trailer next to a swamp on the outskirts of West Palm Beach. The two had met two years earlier when Brian had worked on Diane's car. The local police knew Brian Spencer as he had been arrested multiple times for drunk driving and had spent 10 days in jail on his last offence. He had a reputation around town as a hard-drinking, tough ex-hockey player who wasn't shy about throwing his weight around in some of the local bars. So where was he the night Michael Defoe had been murdered? In a bar across town, he claimed. Detectives from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office obtained a search warrant for the trailer that Diane and Brian shared. They took two pairs of muddied high-heeled shoes. They wanted to compare the soil samples with the samples taken from the area where Michael Defoe had been left for dead. The shoes and the soil samples were sent off to the FBI in Washington, D.C. And when the results came back, they indicated that the soil on one of the shoes matched the soil from the crime scene. The police could now prove that Diane Delana and Michael Defoe had been on the same desolate road on the night of February 3, 1982. But was Brian Spencer there too? Diane was brought in for questioning again, but continued to deny any involvement in Michael Delphoe's murder. Investigators were certain she knew more than she was letting on, but they just didn't have enough to charge her or Brian. The case went cold. On the night of January 18th, 1987, Brian Spencer had just left one of his local watering holes where he had been nursing a few gin and tonics. When he was ambushed by a tactical team of undercover police detectives and arrested. He had heard the police were looking for him. He had some outstanding arrest warrants for drunk driving, but this seemed like overkill. They had him on the ground with a gun to his face. By 1987, Brian's life had completely deteriorated. The former hockey star who was now homeless drifted around the Palm Beach area, crashing with friends, washing in swamps, and hanging out in dive bars. What few life possessions he had, he carried around with him in a tattered briefcase that had been presented to him 15 years earlier in the summer of 1972 when he left the Toronto Maple Leafs to play for the New York Islanders. Inside the case were old press clippings, bubblegum hockey cards, photos of old teammates, and family snapshots, images from a former life far removed from his present situation. Brian had the briefcase with him when he was arrested. Five years after the murder of Michael Delfo, Brian Spencer was charged with his kidnapping and murder. The following day, news of Brian Spencer's arrest was headline news in the Palm Beach Post, and the story was quickly getting picked up in every city Brian had ever played hockey in. Fans remembered the infamous Spinner Spencer, known for his fearlessness on the ice, But he had faded into obscurity after his retirement from the game and now he was being charged with murder it had to be a mistake but the palm beach district attorney's office was certain that they had the right man in custody in fact an eyewitness to the murder had finally come forward based on press reports brian spencer's ex-girlfriend Diane Delena had given investigators a statement three months earlier claiming that Brian shot Delfo and left him for dead on the morning of February 4, 1982. According to the former escort, after her unsuccessful date with Delfo, she had gone home and was then called out on another date by the escort service. Back in those days, she often made $1000 a day. When she arrived back at their trailer later that night, Brian was home from a night of drinking. She said he became angry when she told him about her difficult date with Delfo. Brian insisted on going over to Delfo's condo. He said he planned to teach him a lesson about how to treat his girl. Diane said that when they arrived at the condo complex, Michael Delfo was standing outside on the lawn, acting erratically. Brian asked him to get in their car, and the three of them drove to the isolated road out by the wastewater treatment plant. Diane said she thought Brian was going to rough him up a little, but when the two men started arguing, she got out of the car and ran down the road. Not long after, she said Brian drove up beside her. He was alone in the car. They drove back to their trailer. Did she see Brian with a gun, the police asked? No, said Diane. Did she hear gunshots? No, she said. Diane told the police that she didn't know Michael Delfo had been killed until the police came to their trailer the following day to question her. And later, when she asked Brian why he had done it, he simply said that Delfo deserved it. Diane signed her statement and the police issued a warrant for the arrest of Brian Spencer. It was a long way down for the once-famous NHL hockey star. Brian spent three months in prison before he was granted bail. Some of his old hockey teammates had raised the $50,000 bond. Over the years, friends had heard that Brian had fallen on hard times. But they still didn't believe the man they knew was capable of murder. And they were going to support Spinner Spencer, no matter what. During his time in prison, Brian received over 3,000 letters. He hadn't skated in seven years, but his loyal fans still remembered Spinner Spencer. This spring, as
0: the contending teams of the National Hockey League struggle toward the Stanley Cup, a former NHL player is going through a very different kind of ordeal. Fifteen years ago, Brian Spencer was a hard-hitting forward with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Today, in Florida, he stands charged with the crime of murder.
2: Brian Spencer's murder trial began on Monday, October 5th, 1987. The state was seeking the death penalty. On one side of the courtroom sat Michael Delphoe's family, while on the other side, a group who had gathered to support Brian. Brian's mother, Irene, and his brother, Byron, had flown in from British Columbia. And Brian's second wife, Janet, was there with their two sons, Jason and Jarrett. Sitting with the family were several rugged-looking men, former teammates of Brian's who had come to lend their support, including Dave Keon, who had been the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs when Brian played for the team? In his opening remarks, prosecutor Chuck Burton told the jury that the evidence presented would show that the defendant brutally killed Michael Delpho in the early morning hours of February 4, 1982. He then repeated the story told to investigators by former escort Diane Delena, after she had been granted immunity from prosecution. Brian Spencer, he would argue, was a violent former hockey player with a jealous streak. And fueled by bitterness and alcohol, he murdered a stranger. In his opening address, defense attorney Barry Weinstein advised the jury that the case before them was about Diane Delena, an ex-prostitute who worked for an escort service, and Michael Delphaux, a man who bought drugs and prostitutes. He said that Delphaux's murder was related to the sex trade and organized crime, two linked enterprises common in South Florida. This was a professional hit said the lawyer, an execution. But, he emphasized, this murder had nothing to do with his client, and he would show that after a five-year investigation, nothing was ever found to link Brian Spencer to the crime. As the trial continued, various people were called to the witness stand. The truck driver who had found the body, and the paramedics who had first arrived on the scene. An FBI authority in forensic mineralogy testified that the soil found at the crime scene and the dirt found on one of Diane Delena's high-heeled shoes was a 100% match. Diane Delena had admitted to being at the isolated location when Michael Delpho was killed but denied any responsibility for his death, and five years after the murder had pointed the finger directly at Brian Spencer. The prosecution's case rested entirely on the testimony and credibility of the former prostitute. The state called Diane Delena to the witness stand. Brian Spencer's former girlfriend was now a married woman with two small children. The petite brunette was dressed conservatively and appeared nervous when asked about her former job with the escort service. That kind of lifestyle was far behind her now, she said. For the next three hours, Diane retold the events of the night of February 3rd, 1982, when she met Michael Delphaux. Diane admitted to lying to the police when they originally questioned her about Delfo's murder. She said she was scared to admit the truth. But five years later, when she was granted immunity from prosecution, she had no trouble telling her version of events from that fateful night. Next on the witness stand was a middle-aged woman who had previously been Brian's boss at a company in West Palm Beach and had gotten to know Diane Delena since Diane's mother worked at the same company. The witness described how Diane had met Brian at a company picnic and had become infatuated with him. Brian, she said, thought Diane was cute, but not too bright. When asked about Diane's reputation for truthfulness and honesty, the witness said that Diane was, quote, very dishonest and a habitual liar. And with that damning comment about the prosecution's key witness, the defense rested. In his closing argument, Prosecutor Chuck Burton admitted that many details of the case were vague, including Diane Delena's recollection of the murder. She had admitted to being there when Michael Delpho was murdered, but couldn't remember exactly what had happened. She never saw a gun, she didn't hear any shots, and admitted she had lied when first questioned by the police. But according to Burton, the jury should still believe what the now married mother of two was telling them. When it came to the defense's closing statements, attorney Barry Weinstein had one simple question. Why would Brian Spencer murder Michael Delfo? Weinstein reminded the jury that Diane Delena was a prostitute and her relationship with the defendant was more of a roommate's with benefits rather than a serious romantic relationship. As he spoke, Weinstein held a clear plastic bag containing Diane Delaney's muddy high heel shoes. We know Diane was there, he said, waving the bag in front of the jury. But there is not one piece of credible evidence that connects my client to this murder, he continued. Diane Delena knows more, said Weinstein. And Brian Spencer is not guilty. The trial had lasted eight days. One hour after the court had adjourned on the final day of the trial, the jury was back with their verdict. Not guilty on the count of kidnapping, not guilty on the count of murder. It was the quickest acquittal for murder in Palm Beach County history. Irene Spencer walked up the aisle to embrace Brian. The former hockey heavyweight collapsed crying into his mother's arms. Later that evening at a celebratory dinner One of Brian's many supporters toasted his friend. Tomorrow is the first day of the rest of your life, he said. And Brian wholeheartedly agreed. Maybe something good can come out of something bad, replied Brian. He had just been acquitted of first-degree murder, which could have sent him to the electric chair. And now the ex-professional hockey player had another chance to turn his life around. On the night of June 3rd, 1988, eight months after the murder trial, Brian Spencer was shot and killed in what turned out to be a random robbery outside a 7-Eleven store in Riviera Beach, Florida. The killer got away with $3. Brian was 38 years old. The young man from the north woods of British Columbia fought hard to make it to the big leagues. He played with four professional teams. When his playing career ended, Brian Spencer faded from the spotlight. It makes you wonder, how could this have happened to that proud, confident young man from Fort St. James, that kid who was willing to fight to get where he wanted? If there is an explanation, maybe it's that everything in Brian Spencer's life prepared him to be a professional hockey player, but nothing prepared him not to be. 22 years after leaving Fort St. James, British Columbia, the scrappy kid who had made it all the way to the NHL was finally home again.
1: I, I can't say I had a, an overabundance of talent, but I, but I certainly had a, a lot of, a lot of uh, tenacity and fortitude. And a, and a lot of uh, ambition. And I think it kept me, kept me going a long time.
2: Brian Spinner Spencer's ashes were laid to rest with his father, Roy.
1: I still remember what he told me. He says, give it health Sunday. I'm mighty proud of you. I still remember that.
2: Today, many professional athletes are speaking out about their mental health struggles. And more and more pro sports teams are making mental health a priority for their players. In 2013, the National Hockey League in conjunction with the Vancouver Canucks initiated Hockey Talks to raise awareness and break down the stigma around mental health issues within the sport and for fans alike. Hashtag Hockey Talks encourages fans to share personal messages and messages of support to create an atmosphere of open dialogue and awareness about mental health. This is a Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.